Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. So, is everybody confused yet? It means I still have time. So, if you guys didn't notice, we were in the middle of a series, and then Frank came in, and Frank preached for three weeks. Uh, We were doing a series called Blessed Quest. Frank came in. He has started a series called Habakkuk. So, today, I'm going to finish the series Blessed Quest. Next Sunday, Frank's going to finish the series in Habakkuk, and then the next week, we're going to start a new series, and then VBA is going to interrupt us. And then we'll see what happens from there. It's, it's going to be wild. I'm excited about it. Uh, so I've got time to confuse you. That's all that, that's all that matters. But so going back, let's, let's, let's kind of reintroduce ourselves to this Blessed Quest series. Um, so the 12, they would have, the 12 apostles who Jesus called, they would have sat and listened to Jesus as he began to give what would just be the beginning of some incredibly perplexing sermons. And in the very first sermon that he ever gives, uh, Jesus decided to, to tackle the, uh, the concept of happiness, of, of deep-rooted, lasting happiness, something that, that's a topic that still 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out. And that's, that's no fault of Jesus because he gave us the answers. We just, we look to all sorts of other things for the answers. And so prior to uh, my wife having a child and interrupting me one week before the series was over, uh, it's not entirely her fault, I guess. Uh, it's, it's Parker's fault. Um, so before all that, we were, we were one week away, and so we had looked at uh, some of the things that Jesus had been unpacking. And what we had explained is, is the first thing that we had to understand in this series, to understand what we're talking about at all, is we have to understand what that word blessed means, right? Uh, so when we talk about blessed, when we say that in current day culture, Somebody may ask us how we're doing, and we say, oh man, I'm doing so blessed right now. And what do you mean? You mean that things are going good in your life. Maybe, maybe you just receive something. You know, when we're in church and we say that, oh, I'm just, I'm so blessed. God has given me so much. He's doing so many things for me. He just much loved me so much. I'm his favorite kid, right? I'm blessed. And, uh, and what, we, what we said is that that's not what the word actually means at all. And so what Jesus is referring to here, when he uses his, this word blessed, over and over and over again. The word does, yes, it means happiness, but, it, but it's not happiness like we think of it. It's not the idea of, you know, you just got that promotion at work, and you're happy until you find out who your new boss is. You just bought a new car, and you're happy until that new car smell wears off, or, or you've got to take it in the mechanic shop. You find out something's wrong with it, and you bought 17 new parts for it before you figured out that none of those were actually what was wrong with it, right? You're happy until something happens. And so what Jesus is talking about, Jesus is pulling all the way back from the very first psalm, which talks about blessed is the man who the Bible tells us is, is like a tree rooted by a river, whose roots run deep, who can hold on in the chaos. And the psalmist even tells us when, when the water dries up, when the seasons change, when life around that tree seems to be falling apart, what does the tree do? It just keeps on doing its, its roots have run deep enough that when the surface, when the things that are shallow have gone away, it still has what it needs. 
That sustenance runs deep. And so what Jesus is teaching us is not just fleeting happiness. Jesus is trying to show us, listen, I made you. I created you. I know what makes you happy. So trust me when I tell you the things that will make your roots run deep. That will put you in a position that when your whole life seems to be falling apart, you have the rest of the world confused because you're still holding on to a joy that they can't seem to find. That's what Jesus is talking about. And, and so what it looks like, as we've been unpacking these, we've gone through all these different things that Jesus is talking about, and it looks like Jesus is taking everything that we know and flipping it upside down. But if I may, what Jesus is actually doing is in the beginning, God introduced to this world his kingdom, and everything was perfect. And we humans decided to mess that up. We made a mistake, and we flipped his kingdom upside down. And now that Jesus has come into the picture, it's like going to a two-year-old and saying, hey, can I show you how to actually play with that? Can, can I show you what you're actually doing wrong? Can I show you how this toy actually works? Jesus is coming in and saying, no, 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 no. You're using this all wrong. You're doing it wrong. The happiness you're pursuing, the things that you think that you want are actually all wrong. Let me show you how you're actually made. Let me show you how the kingdom actually works. And so we see this. If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, where we started in verse 2, Jesus starts teaching here, and he, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Are you getting the trend here of things that don't, he's flipping things back over. Uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then this week we finally finish it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as the apostles have sat and listened... I imagine they've got a thousand questions running through their minds. So many things that they're wondering. They just dropped everything to follow this man, and now they're finding out he just might have a few screws loose. Right? I mean, if you were hearing this for the first time, hold on, Jesus. Listen, listen. I, I know that you're, you're some mystic, you know things, and, but this isn't how you pursue happiness. Like, persecution? No. That's not how happiness works, Jesus. I could tell you that. And, and so they don't, I, I can imagine the questions that they've got going through their mind as Jesus starts to explain this. Happiness doesn't work that way at all. And I have to wonder at the same time, did the apostles have any idea what kind of persecution they would end up facing because of this man who they've decided to follow? I, there, there's no way that they could have, they may have thought that maybe people will get upset with us. Maybe there will be some tension along the way. But there's no way they possibly could have fathomed the persecution that they would face for following this man, Jesus. I mean, if, if you look at history, actually, I mean, legitimate history, you can find that 10 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death. And the other two were Judas and the apostle John, who, by the way, may have not died a martyr's death, but that doesn't mean they didn't try. History tells us that he was actually boiled alive, survived it, and so they banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where John clearly didn't give up on the whole Christianity thing, because guess where the book of Revelation was written? So 
he may not have died a martyr's death, but he may not have had it much better at the same time. But all of this still rings true for us. This, this shows us the gravity and the size of the kingdom that Jesus is coming in and preaching. It shows us that there will, in fact, be tension even for us. But I want you to first notice something really important before we really get into this. There's, there's a certain clause that Jesus has added into this. Notice Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are those who are persecuted, right? He doesn't just leave it there. And uh, I wonder why. It's, it's almost like he knows us. It's almost like he knows how crummy of people we can be, right? It's, it's almost like Jesus fast-forwarded to 2019, looked at American Christians, and, and you know what? I should probably make sure that I clarify that this persecution only counts if you're, doing, if you're getting persecuted because of righteousness, I mean, we've got so many Christians in America, especially in America today, who are crying because they're being persecuted. They're, they're crying because people don't like them. They're crying because everybody wants to take everything away from us. Nobody wants to be our friends, and, and we just can't handle it. And, and we think, well, this must be the persecution that Jesus is talking about. But what we don't realize is, and I think most of us, whether or not we'll admit that it's ourselves, we, we can point the finger to somebody, that some Christians are being persecuted just because those Christians kind of being jerks, right? I mean, have you known somebody like this? Somebody who professes Jesus, but, but it's like, hold on, pump the, like, didn't Jesus talk love and, and kindness and, and all the, and, and I don't see that in you. So, so hear me clearly. If you are the Christian who is the jerk, this does not apply to you. This happiness that Jesus is teaching here doesn't apply to you. You've got some other things that you need to work out with Jesus first, before you can get this part of it. And, and, and what we do, the, the problem is, is that Jesus has come in and he's taught us such a beautiful way of living, such, such a wonderful way of life that, that seems so countercultural, but does lead us into supreme happiness and satisfaction. And Jesus comes in preaching this lifestyle, and it's difficult for us to follow. And so what happens is when we see other people not trying as hard as we feel that we're trying, and they're making mistakes, they're living wrong, they're sinning, they're doing things that we wouldn't do, it gets really easy for us to all of a sudden be the kind of people who throw them under the bus, who, who tear them down, who pull them apart because it makes me feel a little bit better about my mistakes, right? But, but here's the thing. I have a question for you. It's not a trick question, I promise. What do sinners do? Oh, that was, that was weak. What do sinners do? They sin, right? It's in the name. So why are we so surprised that the world around us is the way that it is? And how did Jesus come in and face that kind of a world? If you remember right, there was only one group of people that Jesus was brash with. There was only one group of people that Jesus went face to face against. There was only one group of people that Jesus almost appeared like he could have been a jerk to. And that was the religious. That was you and me. And Jesus came in and said, look, you're doing it wrong. You're, you're telling people that you're following God, but listen, I am God and you're not following me. But to the people who didn't know Jesus, to the people who weren't the religious elite, how did Jesus react to their sin? He time and time again, he came in, he loved the people. 
He told them the truth. He said, go and sin no more. We see that time and time again. But he didn't beat them over for their sin. He loved them in their brokenness. The, the narrative of Jesus that we see from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is the God of heaven meeting us where we are. Time and time again, meeting us right where we are, taking our hand and leading us along the way. And so we've got Christians who, who seem to not get even that. I mean, do, do we realize how many Christians have left the church because of Christians? They don't have a problem with Jesus. They've got a, people, a problem with the people who profess that they follow Jesus. And that's because we seem to have a problem with treating other people like they're made in the image of God. Regardless of their sin, regardless of the way that they act, regardless of the way that they live, they are still individuals who are made in the image of God and who, for the record, God doesn't actually love any less than he loves you. And that's something for us to keep in mind. So what Jesus is talking about here is Jesus is talking about persecution like the cross. The kind of persecution that we get when we pour love into every aspect of the situation that we can possibly pour out only to turn around and have that person spit back in our face. That's what Jesus is talking about. The kind of persecution that he faced. Persecution for loving people. Persecution for showing righteousness. Persecution for acting like Jesus. So it's important for us to first understand that that's the underlying concept of what Jesus is talking about here when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And, and I think there, there are all sorts of people that we could look at in the Bible to get a really good understanding of this. There are plenty of people in the Bible who went through persecution. But I think one of the best evidences of this particular teaching of Jesus actually came a few years after Jesus taught this. The Apostle Paul does a really good job of portraying all of this for us. And so, uh, if you don't know, Paul in the Bible wasn't always Paul. Uh, Paul, when we talk about him, this is the guy who wrote at least 13 of the 27 books that make up the New Testament. Okay, so this guy, a lot of times when we think of him as, as Christians, we think of this guy was the Christian of Christians, right? But Paul wasn't always that Paul. In fact, he wasn't always even called Paul. A few weeks ago in our, in our series, we looked at Acts chapter 9, and what we looked at in there was when Saul of Tarsus, who was a man who persecuted Christians, who killed Christians, who publicly drugged them out of their houses and killed them in the streets so that everybody would know that if you chose to follow this man, Jesus, I will find you, and this is what will happen to you. And so Paul, in the midst of that, or Saul, excuse me, in the midst of that, uh, he volunteers when they find out there's some Christians in Damascus. And Saul says, yeah, I'll be the one to go and find them. I'm zealous for my religion. I'm zealous for the God of the Bible. And, and I understand what these people deserve, so I will go and find those Christians, and I'll make sure that there aren't Christians left when I'm through. And so Saul is traveling down the road to Damascus, and, and we're told that there's this bright light that literally is so bright that it blinds him. And he's confronted by Jesus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we went through that story about how Paul was, uh, he was then renamed to Paul and his life was transformed. And, and what happened in Acts chapter 9 is this, God sent Ananias, a Christian, to go and meet with Paul and heal him of his blindness. God told Ananias this. He said, you listen to me and you go and you heal that man because that man is how I'm going to reach the nations. That man is how I'm going to reach all of the leaders of the world. 
That man is how I'm eventually going to get from having the gospel taught in Jerusalem to Caesar of Rome hearing the goodness of Jesus. That'll be through Paul. And so we, we get this story built up where, where we're looking at Paul, we're looking at what's going on in his life, and, and we see him uh, trying to, almost as if he's trying to make that journey to Caesar. And there's actually one point that Paul is told that he will, in fact, get to speak to Caesar. An angel came to him and said, don't worry, don't worry, Paul, you're not going to die. You will talk to Caesar. Think about the confidence that would give you to hear that from a messenger from God. Oh, you're not, nobody can kill you because you have to talk to Caesar. Until I talk to Caesar, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, right? Well, that was, so Saul was converted all the way in Acts chapter 9. We fast forward to Acts chapter 21, and we see that Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and he's preaching there, and something starts to happen that looks really familiar. As the kingdom of God is preached, the Jews start to get unsettled. They start to get unhappy. And they start to say, we need to find a way to get rid of this. No, we need to find a way to kill this man. It starts to look a lot like the story of Jesus. And so in the midst of this, the Jews decide, well, how is the best way to kill someone? We'll go to the Romans. Sound familiar? How was Jesus killed? And so they go to the, they go to the Romans, and, and they start to, to tell the Romans, hey, this guy is stirring up all sorts of riots. He's doing things wrong. We need to get rid of this guy. And so the Romans come in, they arrest him, and this whole story is looking just like the story of Jesus. And you see in the story, there's a weird transition. Something happens that flips the story so that it's not just like the story of Jesus anymore. And as the Roman centurion has Paul in the fetal position and pulls back the whip, Paul says, are you sure you want to whip a Roman citizen? And the centurion puts down the whip and he, hold on a second, you're a Roman citizen? Because under Roman law, this is where it gets complicated, the punishment that a Roman could receive was not nearly as extreme as what everybody else could receive. So by law, Paul could not receive the punishment that was about to be given to him. So what happens instead is they send him to court. And Paul goes to court, he starts to plead his case, and they're like, you know what, this, is, this isn't a problem that I'm going to take care of. I'm going to send you to the next guy up. You can go talk to, to my boss, right? And Paul goes, and, and we keep seeing Paul keep going higher and higher, climbing this, this ladder of people, and finally, Paul gets tired of getting tossed all over the place as he's trying to plead his case that he hasn't actually broken any laws. And Paul says, you know what? My right as a Roman citizen, I want to talk to Caesar. And so he's first sent to Agrippa, and he pleads his case to Agrippa, and that's where we read in Romans that we're told, oh, Paul, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. And then from there, Paul's actually sent to Rome, and we see him get on the ship, and we're thinking, finally, Paul's going to get to talk to Caesar. And the ship crashes in the sea. And, and everybody gets aboard a, a something that can float, and they all get to shore, and Paul finally makes it to Rome in Acts chapter 28. And we see that he's still on house arrest in Acts chapter 28. He's sitting with a Roman guard, and the book ends. And we never get to see what happened with Caesar. All this tension building up to Caesar and we never get to see it. And this is probably a little familiar to us because how many of us get to see the excruciating details of persecution and we're left to just imagine the reward? Right? Does that sound a little familiar? We get to see firsthand all of the garbage that Paul went through, but we're left to imagine the reward. Well, in the middle of this, in Acts chapter 28, when Paul is on house arrest... He writes a letter that, that we have in our New Testament. 
And that letter is called the book of Philippians. And so uh, Paul, what he starts to explain in this book of Philippians, this book that, that's got the really popular passage that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's, it's probably good for you to know that Paul was actually arrested. He was, he was on house arrest when he wrote this. He wasn't a free man. And so in the midst of all this, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So, so Paul is setting a precedence here. He's explaining something. Paul has reason to boast. Paul has, if, if there's anybody who can say anything good about themselves, Paul is that guy. And he starts to unpack this to us. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, or in other words, to be able to boast for the kind of human that they are, I have more. And then he goes on and he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. If you don't understand what Paul is saying, lock on that phrase right there, a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's like saying they're, they're an American of Americans. They're a model citizen. This is, this is the guy that everybody would want to be, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul, above all, he wants us to understand where he's coming from. He wants us to understand who Saul of Tarsus was. He wants us to understand that he was the guy that everybody looked up to. If there was anybody in America that we could look at and we could say, that's the American dream. That's the guy that I want to be when I grew up. It's, it's as if everybody could have looked at Saul and said, that's the one. That guy is living life right. He's got it all figured out. Nobody's got it better than Saul. And so Saul even tells us, I mean, to the Jew, he says he's the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the guy that everybody would look up to. He's the guy who had it all. He had everything. And even in the church, he was the best of the best, even in the religious world. But then Paul says something really interesting in verse 7 here in Philippians chapter 3. He follows this up and Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, now keep this in mind. Think about what he's saying. Paul is not saying that whatever gain I had, I count as nothing. He's not saying whatever I had gained, I count as worthless. He's saying whatever gain I had, I count as loss. That means that he's saying I would have been better off to sit and twiddle my thumbs until Jesus saved me than to be the man who I had been. All that he had to boast in the flesh wasn't just worthless, it was loss. A few years back, I was an associate pastor at a church in Corcoran, and uh, this was actually around the same time that Katie and I had gotten married, and uh, initially we wound up at the church because the church that I grew up in, um, I, I was going to seminary at the time, I knew I wanted to teach, and they were short of Sunday school teachers, so I volunteered that I'd be the guy to teach. I wanted to, even if I could just be the assistant to the Sunday school class, right? I just, I knew I wanted to start teaching, and so I volunteered myself during a typical church business meeting, which, thank goodness, we don't have here. But anyway, uh, I volunteered myself, and I was told, no, I'm too young. I was in college at the time, literally going to Bible school. And I was told I was too young. No, you can't do it. So I left. And I found another church who a friend of mine, uh, who I was actually going to seminary with, he became the lead pastor there. And I was looking for anywhere that I could serve, and we found this church that had 12 people. That was it. Let me tell you, a church with 12 people, there are places to serve. There are lots of places to serve. And I served. I was the associate pastor. 
I was also the Sunday school teacher. So if I was teaching Sunday school, that means that the lead pastor was preaching. If he was teaching Sunday school, that means I was preaching. One of us was always teaching no matter what. Uh, I also ran the sound upstairs, and I ran the media upstairs, and I led worship, and I did the youth group, and any other miscellaneous things. We also had a Wednesday night service that I taught on, and, and I was doing all of these things, and eventually I burned out. I couldn't handle it. I was done. And so it had become clear to Katie and I that we needed to step away from, from the current season that we were in uh, because it was too far from home and because we were burnt out. And so we started looking for a new church, and we, we started to compile a list of churches that we wanted to visit. And the first church that we went to was South Valley Community Church. And we actually only went. The only reason that church made the list is because that's the only church that I have ever been invited to in my entire life. And so if people are willing to invite someone, something good must be going on, right? You don't invite people to things that you don't enjoy. So I figured if they invited me, I'll go check it out, and then we'll check out the rest of the churches. And needless to say, we never ended up at any other churches. We landed in South Valley. That's where we stayed. And, but I tell you all of this to tell you this. When, when I was out South Valley, I did shrink back from my service. Uh, not from my studies. I, I kept reading. I kept studying the Bible and doing uh, those sorts of things in my personal life. But I stopped serving. I stopped doing the things that I should have been doing. And I watched how they did church. I watched what they believe, and as I kept reading my Bible, it started to become clear to me just how dogmatic and legalistic I had been in my own background, that I was not the kind of Christian that I would want somebody else to be. I, I had been trained to be in a way that I knew what I believed, and I didn't care if it really mattered that you disagreed with me or not. I was going to make it a big deal, and you better believe me when I could say that I could win that argument. Nine times out of ten, I would win that argument. I went and I argued at a church with people, and we proved, I mean, we won the debate handily. I actually agree with what they believe now. <laughs> and so I was just going in, and I was just arguing with anybody that I could argue with. And, and I look back at all of that, and I see it as loss. It's, it's almost as if I would have been better to sit and twiddle my thumbs until Jesus really got a hold of me than to go and argue with people for so long, to give a false picture of Christianity. And I remember at South Valley, I said these exact words to Katie. I have this quote that I said to her and I had written down. And I told her, I never knew that Jesus was so simple and so beautiful. Because the Jesus who I had known was one who would argue with anybody who he didn't agree with. Not one who would meet people where they are and show them unconditional love and someone who would take spit in the face time and time again. And, and I started to, to see Jesus for who he is. And I thought, oh man, how could I ever go back? And, and why would I have lived my life the way that I did? Jesus is so much more simple and so much more beautiful than I ever could have imagined. Everything that I had worked for felt like lost time. I'd been pursuing, uh, to some degree, a watered-down picture of Jesus. And I thought to myself, if I just would have known who Jesus really was from the start, if I just would have had that clearer picture of who he really is from the start, things would have been different. And, and so Paul, back in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul follows this up, this idea of it being lost. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost. Why? There's got to be a reason why it's lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
Paul, Paul's building towards something here. He's comparing and contrasting, so to speak. He's showing us what was and what now is. And everything is on this scale where we are left to decide where is the value. What is of the most worth? Every day we make these kinds of decisions and we decide what is worth it, right? I mean, everybody's complaining. There's this gas tax and we're all upset about it and, and gas prices are just too high. And how many of us have stopped buying gas? Right? Because, because we... we we set a scale in our minds and we had, to, we had to evaluate things. Where is the value? And whether the gas ends up being $8 a gallon or not, I know how hot it is in the Central Valley and I'm not about to walk somewhere in 700 degree weather when I could be sitting in my car with air conditioning. I'm sorry. I've, I've waited out. The value is in the gas even if it's expensive. Katie and I recently, we had to put new tires on our car. And I, this is just the kind of guy that I am. I went out and I got quotes and I took the quotes and, you know, this tire costs this much and it's guaranteed for this many miles. This one costs this much, guaranteed for this many miles. So obviously, I did what any rational human being would do and I started dividing things out and I figured out, well, how much am I paying per mile per tire, right? I mean, that's just the logical thing to do. And so I went with that and I figured out, well, this is our maximum budget and this is the best value that we're getting in tires, so we'll go with those tires. I found the value and made my decision. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. I found the value and made my decision. When compared with everything, if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, it's me. But the value is in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here's the bottom line. You have to decide what's really important. When we look back at all the Beatitudes uh, that we've looked through to this point, all the different times that Jesus told us what a blessed person looks like and acts like, it comes down to you to deciding what is of the most value and then making a decision. And, and so for the record, I can help you uh, realize what is the most valuable thing in your life. Uh, most of us have access on our phones. We can pull up our bank statements, right? We don't like it, but, but that'll real quickly tell you what is of the most value in your life. That which you spend your time, your energy, and your money on is the most important thing in your life. That is where you have decided is the value and you've made your decision. That's bottom line. That's where it is. So here's how this all culminates together. The statement that Jesus made about persecution along with all the other things that Jesus had taught rides on this, following up in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which is what he had been pursuing. That's the former Paul. And he says, but that, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and check this out, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What? This is so counterintuitive, so countercultural to everything that we know. I mean, what, what do we know about Jesus? The peak of popularity in the life of Jesus was at the point where he was beaten, where he was flogged, where he was whipped, where people spit on him, where he had a crown of thorns pulled down onto his head, where he was forced to carry a cross and he was nailed up to that cross, bloodied and bruised where he had a spear thrust through his side. That is the peak of the popularity of Jesus. 
We know his sufferings. And Paul says, oh, that I could just share in that. What? (laughs) But Paul gets something. Paul Paul sees something that so often we have a hard time remembering. And, And remember, Jesus made us, so Jesus knows what really makes us happy. You can't lean on your own understanding of happiness. You've got to lean on what Jesus is saying. And even though it seems a little shady, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, this is God that we're talking about. He knows how we're made. He knows what will ultimately bring us happiness. And, and here's what it all comes down to. What is it that Jesus came and preached? The very first thing that Jesus came and preached, we see it all over this story, but we, all, we see it all over the Gospels. Repent for what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand right? Jesus, we see, we see John the Baptist even, both of them coming in, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, all through these stories that he tells, he says, well, the kingdom of God is kind of like this. And he gives us a parable. And, and all through this, Jesus follows up the Beatitudes and says, okay, now that you have this picture of the kingdom of God, and he starts to unpack a little more to it. So all of this is wrapped up in this idea of the kingdom of God. So, so think about for a second, the apostles, along with all of Israel, They had this picture of the Messiah who would come in and who would wipe out their enemies and establish his rule and reign and it would be perfect and everybody would be happy and it would be wonderful, right? That's that's what they saw Jesus coming and doing. And what they didn't realize is that in a sense, that's exactly what Jesus did. They were watching for, for the Messiah to come in and wage war, but they thought it would be against the Romans, Jesus didn't come in and wage war against any particular people. Jesus came in to wage war against the darkness. Jesus came in to wage war against the enemy. And that's exactly what he did on that cross. That's what he did in his suffering. And so Paul looks at all, Paul gets the big picture of the kingdom. And he understands that if there's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness that are at odds with each other, there's going to be some tension. There's going to be some suffering. And Paul's saying, if I can just be on the front lines of that kingdom, if I can be a part of what Jesus is accomplishing, the marriage of heaven and earth back to each other, the redemption of of man back to God, oh, if I could just have a part in that. Do you guys realize that we were designed for something more than ourselves? All the way back to Adam and Eve, they were told, okay, you're perfect. You live in this perfect garden. Now I want you to rule over the beasts of the field and the plants of the earth. So in perfection, God said, you're going to live for something even bigger than yourselves. You're going to rule over this world that I've made you. And and for us now, we're in this culture that's so focused on self-centered pleasure that we miss it. We do everything for ourselves and we're left feeling empty. Why? Because the God who made us made us for something more. And that is what Paul is seeing. When you live out your gifts, when you live out the things that God has created you for, when you live for the kingdom that he has come to set in place, you will find satisfaction that you can't find anywhere else in the world. That when you pour out your heart and you love people and they turn around and spit in your face, okay, I'll try again. Because loving people brings a contentment that nothing else in the world can bring. Because loving God brings a contentment that nothing else 
in the world can bring. This is why Paul teaches us about a peace that transcends all understanding. Because while the rest of the world comes crumbling down around us, our world is not this, our world is Christ. And he is a firm foundation. So, so let's close this out real quick. All the way back in Matthew chapter 5, we'll follow up. After Paul says, or, or Jesus, excuse me, says here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he follows this idea up and he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad are the words of Jesus in the face of persecution. So if if we're going to wrap this all up, you know, we've been looking at what it means to have real happiness. And we've seen over and over and over again that Jesus preached things that are countercultural. And here's what's happening. Jesus is inviting us to be a part of his kingdom. These aren't prerequisites to his kingdom. These are the fruits of his kingdom. And he's saying, those who live in my will, those who live like I live. And right now we are in the face of opposition from the enemy. But those who live as I live will find happiness, will find a joy that even up on that cross cannot be taken from anyone. That even when dying the martyr's death, the ten of the apostles died, can't be taken from them. That joy stands firm. The suffering and death of Jesus points us to to the fact that there is a resurrection and that what lies at the end is far more good than any of the bad that we see now. I, I need you to understand that, right? You get what I'm saying? The good that is the reward that Jesus offers us is more good than the bad is bad that we see here. Everything that we see in this world, as long as we look at what is in front of us and we see the devastation, we see people uh, hating other people and, and acting out on that in all sorts of ways, when we see just how bad this world is, it doesn't even come close to how good Jesus is. It doesn't even come close to how good that reward that is for us is. That's why in the face of persecution, for righteousness' sake, I'll add, in the face of persecution for righteousness' sake, I have joy. I have that deep-seated happiness. And if there's anything that I could get you to remember from the past nine sermons in this series, it would be this. You will never find lasting happiness outside of Jesus. That's a promise. You can try and try and try, but you will never find lasting happiness outside of Jesus. Because when the world falls apart, it will take you with it. But when my world falls apart, Jesus stands firm. Jesus is my security in the midst of that. And I look at his persecution and I think, oh, if I could just have a piece of what Jesus is doing in this kingdom, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would have contentment. And to that, Jesus says, that's absolutely what I came here, what I taught, is that kingdom of of heaven, that kingdom of God, You can be a part of this. And this is all based on a relationship with Jesus, living with Jesus. Not just saying a one-time prayer that Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me. But saying that prayer 
and following it up with saying, I will follow you no matter what the cost. Because I recognize when everything falls apart, you stand firm. And so we're, we're going to go to a time of prayer this morning. And I want to ask all of you here at the end of this series that, that if you have any questions, if you have any concerns or anything like that, feel free to come and talk to me. But more importantly, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we want to give you that opportunity. Not only to meet him, but to learn what it's like to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. And so, God, we come to you this morning thankful for who you are, uh, thankful that you love us enough to come and make things right with us in spite of our mistakes. We ask that, uh, that you would convict the hearts of every single person here, including myself, that each one of us would have an opportunity to see you more clearly. And as we see your goodness, I ask that it would bring us to a point of re repentance for who we are and for who we've been. And God, I ask that we could take all of this and this knowledge of, of how you designed us and the happiness that you have offered to us and that we could take that and that we could first root it here in our personal lives and that we could then root that in our churches and that we could then take that to the community and show them that the happiness that they've been pursuing their whole lives can be achieved, but only in you, Jesus. We ask that if there is anyone here who has questions about you, who has doubts, uh, who has never met you, we ask that that would change today. We ask that your truth would be present, that your truth uh, would change lives, would convict hearts, and would bring each and every one of us closer to you. And Jesus, we just love you so much, and we thank you for your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave. And it's in your perfect and precious name that we pray. Amen.